0: This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by our friends at Dashlane. The form-filling, password-remembering, data-protecting, all-in-one application. Sing for me, angel of music! Dashlane, live life in the fast lane. Get yourself some cash lane, and you'll be living easy and free. Your internet experience could be so much better with Dashlane. Greetings from the steamy rainforests of Borneo, where Anne and I have tracked the ninth demon of the patriarchy. Anne, which way?
1: That-a-way, we follow the smoke.
0: You got it. May I borrow that sword?
1: Sure. You did buy it, after all.
0: I did not! You bought it using my credit card, which I'm pretty sure is wire fraud, BT dubs Eh,
1: uh, potato tomato.
0: If I'd been using Dashlane, I would have been able to protect my data. And with their premium service, which only costs $5 a month, I would have been alerted through their dark web monitoring service the moment my account got
1: hacked. Well, if you'd been using Dashlane, you would have also had access to their VPN services, encrypting your internet activity even on public Wi-Fi.
0: Don't remind me.
1: I got it. It's in the terms with our sponsor.
0: Start dashing through the internet and help support the show by visiting dashlane.com RDR to start your 30-day free trial of Dashlane, no credit card required. If you like it, use code RDR at checkout to save 10% on your premium subscription. All right, on to the show. This week, I sit down with Aaron Kian and Lee davis Thalburn of Passer Volpez Productions for a thorough, wide-ranging discussion about conspiracy, disability in arts, and how sometimes a sexy monster is just a sexy monster. It's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had such a blast talking to Aaron Kian and Lee Davis Thalburn, and I, I think you'll hear that in this interview, which is bonkers long. Like, this baby clocks in at an hour and 20 minutes in the abridged version. And if you're a $3 and up subscriber on Patreon, you have a chance to hear the even longer extended cut, the extendo friendo, if you will. Big ups to producer Will, who tackled this interview to the ground and wrangled it. I am always grateful to Eli and Will for the way they cut out my ums and make me sound smart, but when you hand someone a piece of raw interview tape that lasts, like, two and a half hours, I feel like it merits special consideration. So, thank you, Will. I I could not do this without you. This interview contains spoilers for Nim's nebulous notions, and to a lesser extent, love and luck. So, make sure you're caught up on Nim's before diving in. Okay, here we go. Please enjoy my conversation with Lee and Aaron. Aaron Kian, Lee Davis-Thalburn, welcome to Radio Drama Revival.
2: Hello, thank you for having us.
0: Hello. What a pleasure. Um, So I have have prepared questions about uh, NIMS, I've prepared questions about Love and Luck, and I've prepared some questions about um, Dr. Seabrook. So I'll try to get... To all of them in turn, but I know that mostly for our purposes, we're mostly going to be talking about NIMs nebulous notions today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want I want to start there, if I may.
2: Yeah, let's start um, there.
0: NIMs nebulous notions is partially a podcast about context and who has it mm. and what conclusions a person can make given that context. So I guess I guess broadly speaking, my question is: What were you thinking about in terms of jumping to conclusions when developing NIMs?
2: So, uh, that actually wasn't part of the original idea. That was something that we only realized as we were working on it. So Nim's Nebulous Notions was written by four people in total. Um, the primary writers were Jamie Drake and A.L. Reynolds. Um, they did most of the writing. Uh, we had another writer, Morgan Junor, who, uh, was working on it, but unfortunately had to pull out due to health. Um, and I kind of took over from Morgan's work once they left, um, And it was a very different. It was a very different production style to what we normally do because it was a much more collaborative process. Um, Instead of sort of already having an idea from the outset, we all sort of workshopped ideas and looked at what we all wanted to write. Um, And there wasn't it. It wasn't a very linear um, writing process. Um, We sort of looked at like. Things we knew we were interested in, like, at the time I was really interested in, like, found footage style audio, which is why it's, uh, presented as Nim making her own podcast. Um, so yeah, we were all interested in science fiction and we just wanted to, like, at that point, none of us had any experience writing for audio. Uh, cause we actually started Nim before I started Love and Luck, um, just by a little bit, but yeah, um, and we were all, all of us involved were, all of us involved are disabled. So it was all a very part-time project. Um, but it was really interesting cause it was unlike anything I've done before procedure wise, which was really cool. Um, so yeah, the, the whole jump to conclusions thing happened as we fleshed out the rest of the story. And then as we began to realize how we wanted the story to end, we realized that there were a lot of assumptions that our listeners would be making and a lot of assumptions that Nim would be making that would just be completely wrong. Um, we, we were very like, we were very conscious of the direction the narrative took was not going to be a common direction, especially in a more global market. Um, we can get into details on this a little bit later if you, if we want to get into spoilers at any point, but, um the fact that we're all australian writers and australian fiction style was a very large part of sort of what how nim plays out um and it's very interesting because australians listening to the show have been way more likely to actually guess the ending than any other nationality so it very it very clearly is something about the way we write that um makes us do the things we do.
0: <laughs> I mean, feel, feel free to spoil. I, I think we can generally, when I interview people, I encourage listeners to have consumed the entire show before we, before we discuss. So feel free to, yeah.
2: Awesome. Okay. So, um. so the fact that at the end of the, at Nim we go actually nothing bad happened here. Like all one bad thing happened, like the faster than life drive failed but actually nothing suspicious happened here. This was just, this was just a ship and people living on it. And it was very normal. Um, that was something we all decided while we were writing it, because we were writing this story and we were like, all right, what's what's the conclusion of this going to be? We've got her exploring this ship. We're like dropping all these cool hints. We've developed this cool supporting character, but what's, what's the point? Um, and we all decided that, you know, we wanted to have this family living on this ship and we were talking about okay what happened to the family and i said what if nothing happened what if just nothing happened like and they just lived their lives um and everyone was really excited about that everyone was like that's great because you know in genre fiction in science fiction we always assume there's going to be a big reveal there's going to be aliens and go- cover ups and everything but actually there was nothing um and that very mundane reality is a very australian trait um Hmm. and it's been interesting because australian listeners have been way more likely to figure out the ending than any other nationality so it's clearly something about the way we do fiction here um that yeah we just we're interested in the boring stuff i guess um cuz yeah it was it was interesting to us to go well if all the if all it, you know you can make anything scary if you strip all the context out of it like that's what fear is right you know so like what if the end result is oh that's not scary cuz that's how real life works i mean i have anxiety and i am constantly afraid of very boring things that are not scary at all just because i don't have enough information you know so yeah, it, it's sort of the the whole jumping to conclusions thing just kind of became born out of writing a cool sci fi thing that we realized we wanted to not be a cool sci fi thing in the end, and realizing that that in itself was kind of like an interesting story. Sure, I, I'm I'm
0: interested in the conspiracy theory angle. Like, how how do you think about conspiracy? as it is packaged for consumption in Australia. Because I have a very particular like angle on how it's consumed in the United States, but I wanna I wanna hear your take.
2: Yeah, I mean it's hard to say. We do not have the same kind of conspiracy theory culture in Australia. That doesn't mean that people mm-hmm. don't believe in them. Um or that it's like not is a anti-vax thing. a big thing in Australia, for example? Oh, unfortunately there are some now. Um it's become a problem in the last couple of years um it's yeah sorry if we've
0: exported that to you
2: no yeah i i I don't think that necessarily that came from america because like there's always been a certain type of parent um here that's very all natural everything um Mm -hmm. so i think we would have developed the anti-vaxxers anyway um But yeah, conspiracy in Australia is sort of, it's not as big of a thing here.
3: I think there is a certain thing in sort of Australian culture that Australian culture has always generally been a bit anti-authoritarian. And I think one of the things that like these conspiracy culture needs to follow is this idea that you have the secret, you have the truth. And when most conspiracies come out of just like the government is terrible, like we all know that. (laughs) Yeah, like
2: that's, that's <laughs> No one not- is surprised when the government's terrible.
3: <laughs> no. So, like, there's there's not really a sort of sense of we need to be faithful to the government for conspiracy theorists to say, but wait, something terrible is happening with the government. It's like, yeah, we know. It's, yeah. it's already happening.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we get more concerned, I think, about uh, corporate uh, conspiracies, mm. I think, than government conspiracies. I see. Um, Like, not so much. I'm trying to think, like... Yeah, it's kind of weird. Admittedly, like yeah, like conspiracy theory culture is not very common here. So, like to be honest, there's an element of writing for Nim that was us kind of just parroting what we know online. Um because none of us are really really experience that corner of ideology very much.
0: It's in the US at least. I have this whole theory that there are two flavors of conspiracy theories. Um, and one is rumored horrible things that actually happen to marginalized people. And the other is rumored horrible things that white people are afraid might happen to them, but haven't or Mm. won't like, like some white conspiracy theorists in the U S are afraid of fluoride in the water. They're concerned. It's like a mind control thing, but like marginalized people, especially black Americans have very sound reason to be concerned about the medical establishment. Mm. Like have you ever heard of the Tuskegee experiments in the, the 40s? Yes, I have. Yeah, uh, nightmarish, right? Like they infected 200 poor black sharecroppers with yep. syphilis and didn't tell them about it for the next 40 years. Yeah, you know? the
3: kind of the, the Australian equivalent is the Maralinga nuclear tests, mm. which happened in, what are those? in Maralinga, like out in sort of desert South Australia, where the British did a whole bunch okay. of nuclear tests and didn't tell the Indigenous people what was happening and decided to do some scientific studies on exactly what the bomb did to Indigenous populations without their knowledge. So that was fun.
2: Yeah, I, I think... And again, this comes back to that no one's surprised thing because, like, in Australia, we treat Aboriginal people worse than most countries treat their Indigenous people, and that's saying something um it's real bad and yeah when Mm -hmm. it when it's revealed the government is doing something crap or you know if it's revealed more likely like because the reality is yeah sometimes they're doing horrible things often it's negligence is a big part of it Mm. um just no one's surprised it's just not there's just not the the soil for uh conspiracy theory because we all know you know it's just, yeah. we can't do anything about it. You know, we try, but yeah, it's why I think it's very um, interesting that true crime is the most popular genre of podcasts in Australia, like everywhere, but most Australian true crime is often about not so much a missing person in terms of like, oh what happened or who did this in terms of, we don't know what happened in Australia. Most true crime is we don't know what happened because the police didn't investigate it. Um, and that tends to be the backbone of our true crime, because unfortunately, most of the victims of the cases true crime talks about were indigenous people. Um, so yeah, it's a massive problem.
0: That's very different from American true Mm. crime, which is usually about, like, mutilated white women.
2: Yeah, um... Admittedly, like, we, like, there's so much true crime. I have not listened to it all. Um, but, sure. like, certainly the bigger podcasts are usually about horrible things that happened to Indigenous people and then that no one cared. Um, well, obviously, the Indigenous people, like, cared, but um, white people didn't care.
0: Sure. Well, I think it's interesting that you characterize the ending of NIMS as... Like, nothing actually happened to the Felidus Neridae, Where, whereas, like, my interpretation of it was that after Cassie died, everybody else slowly died of heartbreak over the next 26 years. Well,
2: I, I think that's but a I guess, legitimate I reading, but the thing is, it's 26 years is a long time. You know, you sure. can't spend, it's it's very difficult to spend 26 years not doing anything, especially when you're isolated, like you would be if you were on a ship with just your family. Um Right. Yeah, like I mean obviously things still happened. Like I mean the the drive failed and they couldn't go anywhere. So like obviously that was a big thing that actually happened. Um it's just that there's no alien. But it wasn't this, it wasn't no, caused yeah, by th- anything. No one planned yeah. this. This wasn't malicious. It was just accidents.
0: In Aaron, in an interview you did with the burlesque performer Ella Bells, you said that you make when you make space for queerness and performance, you lean on the tragedies in your life and the really dark mm. stuff. Um, is would would you characterize what happens to the Felidus Naradae as a tragedy, or does it does it really seem more quotidian in that regard? I don't
2: know what that word you just used means. Can you define it, please? Oh, sorry, every <laughs> okay, day. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it's everyday stuff. I don't think that what happened. I think that the family of the fellow just suffered tragedies, but I don't think that everything that happened is a tragedy. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: And, and to that point, um, and <laughs> you said on, on a different podcast interview with Mary Joseph's and Adrian Webster, you were talking about how you said tragedy isn't the problem. It's about how your audience is going to feel when they consume the yes. tragedy. Um, So what are you using, and this is a question for for both of you to talk about, for NIMS or Love and Luck and Supernatural Sexuality with Dr. Seabrook, like, what are you using these stories to heal and cope with?
2: I mean, with Love and Luck, it's very upfront and obvious, like, straight up, we don't see happy endings for queer relationships, or if we do, it's a love story where they get together and then they go, and then they lived happily ever after, and we never actually see the happily ever after um, and even in love and luck, some really horrible things happen. Um, but it, it, you know, it's funny cause we sell it and it is a very positive up vibe, happy, fluffy story, but some really horrible stuff happens in it. But again, it, it is about yeah. that. The tragedy has to be handled properly. The tragedy in love and luck isn't gratuitous and it's not, it's not meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be thrilling it's meant to be awful and then once it's been awful we get over it we heal or as best we can because sometimes you can't i mean um ricardo has ptsd from what happened to him and um that was a mistake on my part because i have ptsd and i was like i'm gonna write a character with my own experiences that was a great idea until i realized that i had to like Listen to it over and over and over again as I edited it. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, but like you know, part of the thing with love and luck is even if things are horrible and horrible things happen, you can still be happy. At the end of the day, that's the that's the message. No matter what happens, you can still be happy because even if you never get over it, there's still good reason. Like there's still reasons to stick around. There's still a lot of joy you can have. Um, And I think Love and Luck is the most obvious sort of, you know, trying to put a positive spin on tragedy of our shows. Um, I think with Seabrook, we take a more practical um, sort of working at it perspective.
3: Yeah, like one of the sort of ethoses of of Seabrook is that people have problems there are there are always problems in relationships but that doesn't mean the relationships are bad it just means the relationships need work and sort of right one of the decisions we made quite specifically with SeaBRO is because we wanted to not have a lot of episodes or a lot of calls where we're saying look you just have to dump the motherfucker because because <laughs> yeah. oh
2: yeah are we allowed to swear david
0: oh yeah
3: <laughs> okay
2: good yeah.
0: swear with <laughs> reckless abandon fantastic um,
3: but so the Seabrook, Seabrook is meant to be an inherently optimistic show about relationships it's about if you want this to work and the person you're with wants to make it work too, you just need to figure out a way that those two desires work together to make the relationship work.
2: With the caveat, cause we were, when we were talking to our writers about this, we didn't want, we don't want the message to be, you should never break up no. either. Um, it's just that we wanted, and, and so we do have a few calls throughout the season where sometimes it is dump the motherfucker. Yeah. Um, but we didn't want that to be the prevailing sentiment. Mm, we wanted right. that to be, you know, yes, sometimes you've got to cut and run, mm. but usually if everyone in the relationship is coming at it, you know, with good faith and trying their best, Usually there's a way forward. Hmm. Um, And it was actually something else we told our writers. We didn't really want to have too much content about abusive relationships in Seabrook because we wanted this to be a bit more of an oasis. We didn't want it to be, you know, again, we don't want it to be gratuitous. We don't want it to be, you know... Let's, let's look at all the worst things that can happen in relationships. It's like, well, you know, let's, let's try and look at what positive things we can put out. Yeah. And
3: just more importantly, we wanted, we wanted the show to help people who are in relationships, like help resolve the issues they have with their relationships, if that's possible. Mm. Like the show, the show is very much like love and luck is about showing how good relationships can be. Seabrook is kind of like a way of helping people get to that point. If they're not at that point already.
2: Yeah. Cause like one of the things I'm very conscious of with love and luck, um, is the way people consume love and luck. I'm very conscious that we are modeling possibility with love and luck. Right. We are modeling how things could be. And, that means that love and luck can't get into complicated stuff and that's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, it's not the place of every piece of art to get into everything, you know, and love and luck's job, isn't to talk about nuance. Love and luck's job is to talk about possibility and Seabrook is much more about the nuance. Seabrook is much more about, okay, but what if this, how do you, how do you get to the good possibility if you are not there yet? Hmm um because you need both because you need to be able to visualize what what could be and then you need to figure out how to get there you can't figure out how to get somewhere that you can't visualize and you can't get somewhere you visualize if you don't know how
3: no i'd, I'd agree 100 percent on all that actually yes
2: yeah and awesome. i think you know in terms of nim like we still like you know all the characters in Nim, like all, so one of the things that surprises people is obviously, and we, we did lean into this, expecting Al, the AI, to be evil in the end, to, mm. to you know, mm-hmm. do something evil. When actuality, Al just wanted a friend. Um, yeah. And, like, that's, that's a thing too. It's like, you know, you can't... How someone interacts with you, especially because I think all of us, uh, certainly a lot of us, um, are neurodiverse... And so the way we engage socially can be very different. Um, and Al is very much a, a very neurodiverse character. Um, even if it's an AI, um, and sort of going, you know, like, sometimes you just need to talk to someone for a while to figure, st- like how, figure out how to communicate, um, and figure out like, and like learning to trust people that you've just met, like, you know, Al is, is another, like. Potential, Like, here's how we could look at this. Here's how we could do this. (laughs) Um, and even with the family, um, obviously we only hear snippets of their lives together, but it was important to us that, you know, they like each other. They like being together. Like, yeah, they have a fight every now and then because that's what families do, but it's not toxic, you know, it's still a really good family relationship. Um... And so even even though like relationships are not really the point for lack of a better word of nim like it's still about ways of doing relationships that don't rely on assuming the worst and having a lot of conflict um because sure i get very bored of media where interpersonal conflict is the main conflict um it it's
3: I can barely watch those things myself. Yeah.
2: um, Mm -hmm.
0: They stress me out too, Lee. Yeah. (laughs) So Nim is very interested in exposing what she thinks is the truth. And in order to do that, she repeatedly invades people's privacy. And for the most part, part, it's like a sport to her, right? Like at least initially until Tyler doxes her. So I guess my question is, as a team of writers, what were you interested in having Nim learn throughout the series?
2: I mean, you know, it's interesting you point out the privacy thing. I mean, this is partially why her first interaction with Al is Al saying, like, excuse me, that's not yours. You shouldn't do that. Um, and, you know, it's a funny moment, but it's also true. She shouldn't have been doing that. Um, and I mean, what she basically did is she crowbarred ob- open a crypt. Yeah. right? And is, like, rooting around in it. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that's quite fair because Al did transmit for people to come. Sure. But, sure. yeah, it's very similar. I mean, Al was not like, please come into this ship and go through all my people's things. It was, <laughs> please come to this ship. I'm so lonely and I just want someone to eat a carrot. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, like, it's all it's all very exciting to investigate things and, and unearth secrets until it happens to you. Um, right. And yeah, like Tyler is very much the, the evil Nim. You know what I mean? Like he is very much what Nim could have been and like, yeah, having Nim go, oh, actually he's the worst. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, she starts off with this hero worship of him, which God, when I got lines back from Sarah, our actor, we were, we were all so delighted because she just nailed that breathless fangirl obsession Uh, with tyler and you know in the space of like i mean i we don't we don't have an exact like in studio opinion on how long nim takes but it's probably not that long it's probably only a few hours um and over the course of a few hours her hero turns out to be awful and not just awful to her but it gets when he is awful to her she starts thinking about all the other stuff he does you know right um yeah it's 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 very much uh, a lesson about, like, mostly just consent. Because, you know, once she talks to Al and Al is like, oh, actually, I'd like to know what happened too. Like, that's fine. And things go a lot right. faster and better, um, you know. And, yeah, it's it's interesting.
0: It's also interesting the sort of toxic fandom that Tyler tolerates or maybe even encourages
2: yeah um so tyler was written by a.l reynolds um and they did an amazing job um because we all hate tyler we the the production (laughs) team so
0: easy to hate
2: we hate him so much but like but he's also such a great character um sure and um a.l would would constantly be like they would be like oh i hate him he's the worst but also i love him um and and like yeah it's he's such a fun character but oh my god he's the worst um casting him was really like i was really worried about it because we knew exactly what he had to sound like he was you know for a lot of characters we were very open to finding you know just seeing what actor you know did a good job but we knew what tyler had to sound like (laughs) um and Tyler's lines, uh, we we cast uh, Kevin K Gomez as Tyler, who did he did such an amazing job, and it was so funny when I was editing the show, I would when I was editing any of Tyler's parts, they would be these beautiful oases of just silliness, um, uh-huh. like the the first. Uh, I can't remember if it's the first or second episode. Mm. Early on, the first time we hear Tyler, it's, you know, from his show, and I got to put in this obnoxious music and these (laughs) horrible explosion sound effects. It was amazing. It was so much fun. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, like, Tyler is... I mean, Tyler is essentially a 4chan guy. Like, Tyler is that guy, you know? And that guy is dangerous, and I feel like... That's something we don't think about very often. Well, I mean, we probably think about it, but I think culturally, sure. I think we
0: think about it a great deal.
2: Um, yeah. Culturally, I don't think we think about it very much. We tend to think of yeah. these men as only becoming dangerous when they pick up a gun, but even they're dangerous long before that. Um, and yeah, it's Tyler, Tyler is very much a cautionary tale, I think, um, because it is very easy for anyone to go, "Well, I'm not like that." I would never do that. But, you know, you have to actually look at what you're doing now and whether that's putting you on the path towards that.
0: Sure. Have you heard the term... This is a sidebar. Have you heard the term stochastic terrorism? No. I have, yes. It's this idea people are creating the
3: opportunity for people to do terroristic acts without there being, like, a underlying
0: structure behind it. Oh, to, so 4chan, recognize. yeah. Yes, yeah, like 4chan. <laughs> yes. There was there was an abortion provider, uh, I think in Kansas, whose name was Bill Tiller, and the former Fox host, Bill O'Reilly, just would make him the subject of two minutes hate, you know, for many years and talk mm. about, like, oh, this, this asshole is still, you know, terminating pregnancies in this state. You know, and he wouldn't use... That language, because even to say terminating pregnancies is yeah. too, like, compassionate, like, yeah. pro-abortion language. And too, like, to use. factual. <laughs> right. Um But someone eventually shot him to death in church, you know. Yeah. Uh And it, it was, like, obvious that O'Reilly was liable. He wasn't legally liable, but he was culturally liable because he mm. wouldn't have been this, like, object of mass hatred if he hadn't yeah. been flogging that that man's name, you know, on, on his show day in, day out.
2: And I mean, we I see, we see this, like, carrying out with, like, YouTubers all the time. Yeah. Um, it was to the point there's a, a YouTuber who I immediately subscribed to. I watched one of his videos, and the first comment on the video was him being like, Hi, you can't post hate in these comments. I will delete it. Um, and he had this whole long comment, and I was like, wow, I've never actually seen someone curate their own fan base so carefully
3: and so visibly
2: and so visibly mm-hmm. and I immediately subscribed and I left a comment. I was like, wow, I'm subscribing because I just don't see that. Um, and to some sure. degree I understand it because you know, like you can't control what other people do, but at the same time, there is some responsibility there. Um, right. and it should be taken as seriously as any other. Mm.
0: Do you remember PewDiePie returning his, like, canceling his donation to the Anti-Defamation League because his fans didn't like that he was donating to a Jewish organization?
2: Yep. Mm. Wackity schmackity (laughs) do. Yeah, I have have nothing to say about it, but yeah, I remember it. Oh, boy.
0: Anyway, um, Aaron, to go back to something you were talking about a little bit ago, you were talking about the thematic constraints of love and luck and how there are there's not really a ton of room for nuance within that show, which isn't something that I'd really thought about.
2: I was going to say, I occasionally get people going like, you know, oh, is something really horrible going to happen? Is a character going to do something bad and all this kind of stuff? And it's like, no, that's not going to happen because that's not this kind of show. I think that sometimes we think that a piece of media has to do everything, and that's not true. A media has to do what it is there to do. If I introduced say one of a, a beloved love and luck character turning out to be abusive, that would be very damaging to the show as a whole. It would be very damaging to the audience who've come to trust these characters. And as much as you could make the argument that, you know, that's real, that's how real life works too. And that's true, but love and luck isn't real life. (laughs) It's, you know, it's this oasis. It's somewhere that people can go to be okay. And so it can't have that thing happen in it because it just defeats the purpose of the show. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's something I think people don't think about a lot. Um, And honestly, I didn't think about it much until I I started creating content. Um, And then I realised there was a lot of stuff in Love and Luck that I just could not do, or it would go against the point of the show. Yeah. Against
0: the point of the show and against the, the contract that you've made with the audience.
2: And it's not that you can't pull unexpected things on your audience. Obviously, that's a very common and very good, like, thing in media a lot. Um, but it's... There's there's unspoken rules about it. <laughs> right. Because, you, you, like,
3: you can, you can pull twists. You can, like, you yeah. can change where the narrative is going, but you can't change what the show is.
2: Yeah. Like... I think okay, so really a good example is Hereditary, where mm. everyone thinks that a character is gonna be uh, the important character for the whole movie. Mm. Um, that character then dies, like pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and that was hugely unexpected and definitely completely throws around what you think this movie is. Mm. But sure, it's true, I mean something that Psycho movie. does, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, it's still a horror movie. It still does what it says on the tin. It just <laughs> played with your expectations. Right. And there's a difference, I think, between playing with expectations and betraying the audience. <laughs>
3: I think another really good example is The Good Place. Mm. And the Good Place, every season, fundamentally changes how the narrative is structured and where the show is going. But it never fundamentally changes what the show is about. Yes. Which is about these people learning how to be good
0: people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good example. Mm. Yeah, I've
0: been thinking about that a lot. Like, like there have been some ridiculous twists, and none of them have made me angry because the characters remain the same. They're so consistent.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's,
0: like, shepherded me through as an audience member. You know, everyone getting their brains wiped and starting experiments over and all that. Um, but let's – I want to bring it back to your podcast. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> So the first season of Love and Luck had these very particular constraints that enabled you mm. to get it off the ground without super immersive design, but yes. you steadily increased the amount of sound design in that show as people begin to, like, record multiple people, musical performances, videotaped outings that aren't voicemails at all. Can you yeah. tell me about, like, the design work you've done lately, the challenges and the triumphs, and the fully designed shows like like Nim?
2: yeah god nim was such a uh exciting thing to do after two years of love and luck because yeah love and luck doesn't have a lot of sound design um and it was designed that way i i planned it that way because i didn't know anything about sound design when i started so i wanted to make sure that whatever i was doing would be within my skill level um and that's why i mean constraints shaped everything right and i don't i that's not a knock i don't No, 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 no! You're no, you weren't knocking me at all. You you successfully pinned the truth, like, (laughs) because, I mean, you know, like, yeah, no, I'm not, and I'm not putting myself down either. It's just that I literally didn't know anything about this, and I didn't want to make it too hard on myself because I was more interested in making something, even if not, you know, good, at least mediocre. I didn't want to make something bad, so, you know, and I knew that. I know personally, I find that. Doing something easier, but then polishing it up really well, will have a much better effect than trying to do something really ambitious and doing it badly. So, yeah, a lot of love and luck was entirely designed around this not even just the sound design but like the whole reason it's a romance story was because i didn't have money for the first season so i was like well i can do voice acting and lee can do voice acting and i want to do voice acting so what's something that i can write that only has two main characters oh hey romance is a really easy genre for that um i don't want to have to edit a lot of complicated dialogue let's see if we can just make them monologue at each other um So, like, so much of everything about Love & Luck was built around what I felt up to doing um, for the show. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of... And it has gotten a little bit more complicated, and part of that is just because... As I introduced more characters and more complicated B-plots, I needed ways to have these things happen on screen, for lack of a better term. But I... Right. for reasons that will become clear in season three, did not want to abandon the found footage style. Um, and so, sure. yeah, it, it's it's been interesting. It's been a lot of fun. One of the most fun things, even though I grumbled about it at the time, because Love and Luck is so focused on Melbourne, it's so set here, like love and luck could not be made in any other city. You can't adapt love and luck to another city. It's about Melbourne. Um, there are some locations in the show where, so I normally use, uh, libraries for sound design, like for sound effects, uh, because I am chronically ill and going out and doing field recordings is very, very difficult. Even recording stuff at home can be very, very difficult. So I mostly use sound libraries but there were a few things like Southern Cross Station or St. Kilda Beach where nothing I could find actually sounded like the place. And to be fair, I don't think anyone but me would have minded if I had fudged it a bit, but I was like, no, this has to sound like Southern Cross Station. This has to sound like St. Kilda. So we would go out on these like 9 p.m. Field recording sessions, like there's a great photo of me on Lee's Twitter somewhere where I'm just because it was like the middle of summer. I'm like um, just like sitting in shorts in Southern Cross Station. I think that one it was at like 10 p.m. or Something 11 like p.m. Yeah. just like there with the big <laughs> headphones and the Zoom recorder, just sitting there recording trains. I love like, that. <laughs> I remember that night because at that point, Aaron was like, oh,
3: I, I just can't find like I can't find a train station that works." It's like, and I was like. All right, I guess we're taking a trip to to um Southern Cross Station then. It's like can we let's let's pack up, let's get going. Yeah. <laughs> um
2: and especially because in the season 2 finale, we have about 40 seconds of quote-unquote silence where all you can hear is St Kilda Beach. I needed that to actually be St right. Kilda Beach. <laughs> um as I, said, I don't know if anyone else would have cared, but I care.
0: Um, I did wonder as I was listening. Yeah, to it, like
2: it's been it's been good. Like I have been.
0: I was like, is this library? Because I don't yeah, think it is. That that,
2: that forty seconds yeah. is real real St Kilda Beach. No, that was real, because um, yeah, I cause St Kilda Beach for starters it's a bay beach and most sound libraries don't have ocean sounds from bay beaches because bay beaches have much smaller waves. Um, secondly, there are roads like right by the beach yes. <laughs> because it's a cosmopolitan beach. So there needed to be a little bit of traffic. Um, not a lot because this was happening at 4am right. in fiction, right. but there still needed to be something. Cause I've been at those beaches at 4am and there are, there is still traffic. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was really important to me. That's like, that was like, oh, it wasn't episode hundred. It was episode 99. What yep. am I thinking of? Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, so anyway, I got off topic. Sorry, yes, sound design, like, it's it's evolving as I evolve. Um, and I don't do the sound design for Seabrook. Lee no. does, um, which has been a whole different adventure.
3: Because um, because Seabrook is, is my first sort of big um, foray into sound editing. Aaron was quite clear on this, that when we started the project, that Aaron was not going to do the editing right. for this. And I was perfectly fine with that until I started sitting down and editing oh, the new no. thing. <laughs> uh, and so I have been learning very quickly how to get sound get sound design in to sound design some voices like we make a deliberate choice in seabrook to try and make sure most voices are mostly just regular people sounding yeah um that's a choice to reduce the sound design and also because we kind of want this to just sound like a call-in radio show Mm. and like most people sound like regular people so that's that's sort of what we did um but yes, there have been a few calls where I have just been banging my head against the screen saying, why is this so hard? <laughs> why does sound design <laughs> require all this? Why, and, why am I
2: rendering this five times to get this right? And like, you even have the benefit of having me here because, you know, like,
3: I could ask you for help.
2: Exactly. Like, yeah, it it was, it's very funny. <laughs>
3: Yes, I'm sure it's very funny for you. Because, yeah,
2: when we started Seabrook, because, you know, at that point we hadn't finished Nim yet, so I was already working on two podcasts. Mm. I was like, I can't do the editing on this. I don't have time. Um, And, yeah, so that's been an adventure. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot of fun, and I'm actually – I'm not sure if my next project – because I know what my next project is going to be. I'm not sure if I'm going to do the sound design for it or not – It'll depend on what my okay. budget is. If my budget is low, I'll be doing the sound design. And okay. I'm kind of excited about that. If my budget is higher, um, I actually have a friend who I've collaborated on a short with, which will be available soon, um, called Maze Wallen. And they're in a, uh, their day job cool. is sound design and uh, composition. So I'm hoping to be able to hire them. But you know, like I had so much fun with Nim after working on Love and Luck because Love and Luck is mostly just arranging some beeps and hang up noises. Um, It's just getting timing right and take selection. Um, And it's very, so it's not very creative. It's very busy work. Whereas with Nim, I got to actually like do some creative (laughs) sound design and that was so much fun. Um, Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm I'm definitely getting more into that, into like individual pieces I'm making for like local festivals and stuff as well. It's been it's really interesting because when I got into podcasting, I never thought I would be into sound design. Um, I thought it would very much just be a like what I do to make the thing happen.
3: Um, Whereas on the other hand, I'm not surprised even slightly, not one
0: bit, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Aaron, you were a spoken word art. You were and are a spoken word artist before, right?
2: Yes, I do spoken word pieces um, around Melbourne Um, and I used to, I need to redo them. I used to also have those word pieces available in audio on my website as well. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, and I usually, even before I got into podcasting, I, it was not uncommon for me to use a backing track for spoken word because I think that like, just with really like sparse, like meditation-y kind of music, just because I think that kind of thing really helps people settle in um, to listen to something. And because I, I am as disabled as I am, I am not a physical performer. Right. I can't get up on stage and move around a lot. So I have to take up space in other ways. And so part of it is just like, I don't know how to describe it, but just like big energy, just like being on stage and just trying to be big. Um, but also like my performance style is very, still and slow compared to a lot of people and part of that is just because slam poetry isn't for me um but it's also because i find it easier to make people listen to what i'm saying um when i have to get them to focus on me yeah
0: so Aaron, uh, according to an interview you did in june 2018 you spent about six hours a day on bed rest and one, one yes. of the frustrations you've mentioned, you just mentioned about live theatrical performance, and this is from uh, an ABC feature from also from 2018, is that many times theaters will be wheelchair accessible for audience members, but not for performers. <laughs> this is something that Americans who yep. watch this year's Tony Awards would have noticed when the actress Ali Stroker, who uses a wheelchair, had to accept her award by coming on stage through the wings rather than up a ramp from the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How has podcasting accommodated your disability and where has it fallen short?
2: So I have a, um, and this is to be, okay. So I, I have a fun story about the Australian podcast awards to be clear. I love the Australian podcast awards. They are very good people. Um, but we were finalists in fiction this year and I let them know that I, I needed wheelchair access. And so when we got there and we sat down for the, uh, ceremony i realized there was no wheelchair access to the stage and so even before the ceremony had started i knew we hadn't uh-huh. won because oh. <laughs> otherwise there would have been a way for me to get on right. stage um and like no and like that's not i don't have a problem with the australian podcast said, i think they're really cool and also like unfortunately making stages wheelchair accessible can frequently be very expensive so if they already knew i wasn't going to win I totally understand not take spending the money to make the stage accessible. Um, so like I, I, it was just a very funny moment for me of like, ah, everyone's here to find out if they won. And I already know. Um, I guess maybe that took some of the anxiety out of the night. Right? I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. The good thing about podcasting is that mostly I can do it from bed. Um, I have my computer set up over my day bed. Uh, my day bed is like Lee's night bed. Um, cause we live in a tiny apartment. Um, and I can do all my audio editing, all my writing, everything I do on my computer. I have a desktop computer, so I can't, you know, move w- away with it anyway. Um, I can do from bed and it's interesting because the year that I got the day, like set up a c- computer over a bed, my creative output exploded because I'd spent years. Um, so what it used to be, I would get out of bed. I would, I don't eat breakfast. So I would usually just get out of bed and hop on the computer to, you know, start the day and half an hour to an hour in, I would have to go lie down because my pain and fatigue would be so severe. And then I would have to lie down for an hour, maybe more. And then I could get up again for a half hour. And then I'd have to go lie down again for a couple of hours. So that's very difficult to do anything creative when you can't do it in bed um, and you have to be lying down all the time.
3: I remember there were some times where you actually were trying to write things on your phone because you had an idea and couldn't set, couldn't stay up long enough to get it down. So you'd be like trying to get it done on your phone.
2: And I still actually, uh, sometimes I I write so much poetry at 1am because that is poetry hour. Of course. Um, so I, I actually end up writing a lot of poetry on my phone these days, but um, I can't write things that aren't poetry on my phone. It just doesn't work for me. Um, and so I finally was like, okay, this is ridiculous. And we set up the computer over my bed and my creative output just exploded. I went from, It used to take me at least six months to write a spoken word piece. And now I can hammer one of those out in a couple of weeks. Um, Nice. You know, I mean, I wrote Love and Luck in, like, the first draft in a month. I did NaNoWriMo. Like, it would have been impossible um, if I hadn't had the computer set up over bed. So, honestly, podcasting is, certainly, podcasting is much more accessible than stage performance. (laughs) Um, Even if we have an accessible venue... I still have to go to rehearsals i still have to go to the actual i have to go to tech rehearsal i have to go for the actual performance and when you need as much bed rest as i do that can knock you out for a really long time i actually for um a performance we did at the malt house i actually took a fold-up mattress to the green room so that because we had to be there like several hours before the show Mm. So I took a mattress so that I could actually lie down in the green room because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do the show. Um unfortunately it's a dis- uh Quippings is a disability troupe so like everyone works with whatever you've got and you got to work with. I mean I wouldn't be able to have been doing performance if not for Quippings mm. because who else is going to give stage time to a disabled person who needs so much prep? So many accommodations and can't memorize anything. Like I have, you know, part of my illness, I have neurological problems. I can't memorize anything, so I need a script. And holding a script on stage is such a no-no in most of the things that happen mm. on stage. Um, but I need that or I literally can't do it. Um and I actually had an experience with one director who was like, we really want everyone to memorize their pieces. And I was like, hey. I totally understand. Unfortunately, I am physically unable to do this. So I'll have to drop out of the production. And I think about two hours later, I had a phone call from that director being like, oh no, we really, we do want to, we really do. We, we want you. We do. Um, I guess like, if you need it, I guess we can, I guess we can do that. (laughs) It was very Hmm. funny just cause like, yeah, if you want me to perform, you need to like, give me access, (laughs) um, Whereas yeah, podcasting, I mostly do from bed. I mean, we don't, we record, uh, Love and Luck in a studio. Um, so I have to go out for that, Yeah. but we don't do longer than three hour sessions, um, mm-hmm. because I can't be up for longer than that. Um, and like our studio is wheelchair accessible, um, and very central. Yeah. Um, because when we were casting, I wanted to know that I could cast disabled people. That mm-hmm. would be okay. Um, And we have even. And we have. Um, Yeah, like, so I'd love to say that podcasting happens exclusively in a bedroom because everyone, I feel like in podcasting industry, we all talk about it like it does. That's not true because we had to go to studio record. But even when I record at home, I still have to get up. Voice acting takes, you know, quite a lot of energy. Um, We have to go out to do promo. We have to attend events. We have to, like... Do lots of stuff. I have to do media interviews.
3: Let photographers in to get-
2: Let photographers in to take photos of me in my track pants, which happened to me this week. Um, Like, especially because I imagine the media landscape in America is similar to what it is here, where every journalist has about two hours to do five people's jobs at any given time. Um, So when you get a media contact, you have to respond very quickly. Um, And yeah, it's- it is not entirely do from home, but it is much more do from home than a lot of other arts is.
3: All of Mama Boho's lines for Seabrook were also recorded at mm. the same studio before, and I also made sure to do sort of like four-hour runs because while well, I can do a lot, I can do a lot longer tracks than you can. Like I'm, I'm physically abled quite well actually, but I also know that four hours in the studio is a That's long a lot. time to be yeah. doing stuff.
2: Yeah. I'm so accustomed to working with restraint mm-hmm. that restraints don't scare me. I should hope not. Don't you teach bondage? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I still do. I had a lesson last week. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, like, i I don't know. I'm just... But yeah, accessibility is a big issue. And it was something interesting as well, coming from disability arts and going into podcasting before I had even spoken to another podcaster, I had already made space in the production plan to make captions for the shows that well, for the show at the time Mm -hmm. that we made, like all of our shows are available on YouTube with captions because why wouldn't they be for me? It was a very normal, like I just assumed that would be a normal part of production. Um, I was very surprised when it turns out most most podcasters don't do that. Um, and even transcripts people can be really bad about. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I do. And, I mean, accessibility comes into every part of how I make the show. We are talking about sound design before. I put a lot of effort into the sound design so that it's pleasant to listen to and that it's not going to set off anyone's sensory issues. I put a lot of effort into making it very clear that, like, like people with sensory issues, hard of hearing people, deaf people, everyone is like welcome to consume our show. Um, like all of our actors, we coach to speak very, very slowly um, so that it's clear. Because you can always speed up a podcast, but it's and it's going to sound better than if you try to slow it down.
3: Mm, right. Um, I mean, that's something that we've even carried on to Seabrook. Seabrook is not mm. nearly as slow as Love and Luck is. Mm. Like I've, I've asked people to still keep sort of to a reasonable pace. But I also work really hard to make sure that even if people are speaking fast, it's also clear.
2: Yeah. And yeah, like I mix for accessibility, I like, it's interesting, as I said, before I knew anything about audio, I still knew that like, I needed the music to be quieter than most podcasts have their music, I needed like, sound effects to be subtler, because I didn't want them to be jarring. Um, because I would rather someone miss a sound effect than be shocked and startled by a sound effect. Um, that metric might change if I ever make horror, but <laughs> um, at the moment I don't. So Somehow I feel like that if you
3: were doing horror and you wanted to do that, instead of doing like the jump scare, you do the creeping horror of a sound effect slowly creeping in. Yeah, I mean, that's more my talking. style. That's absolutely <laughs> your style. Come
2: on. Um, and it was actually something interesting with Nim because Nim has a lot of very harsh parts sensory wise there's a lot of static and glitching um and so that's one of the content warnings i believe that yeah. we have on the site like if it's not i will go fix that after we do this goal um i know we had it on our event mm. because nim couldn't have been made without those harsh sounds we needed right them. Mm. but i still didn't want them to like surprise people and even then i made sure that uh, they were as gentle of statics and glitching sounds as i could make um because you know podcasting is audio only so i mean that audio better be pleasant to listen to right otherwise people aren't gonna listen to it yeah because it's one of those things around this concept of like universal design where if we make things accessible to disabled people We're also kind of making it better for everyone. Mm. Um, Now, obviously this isn't a blanket statement because competing access needs exist, but you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who don't have any hearing problems or like auditory problems who still prefer subtitles. Like I know a lot of people who don't have sensory issues, but still prefer a pleasant sounding podcast. Mm. Like it, it, It makes a better product putting in the effort for accessibility. Um, and it's, it just comes naturally to me because I'm disabled, I'm involved with disability arts, so many of my friends are disabled. It's on my mind all the time. Um, so like, I'm not angry at people who don't consider this stuff. If they don't, if they don't interact with disabled people regularly, they probably just don't think about it. Um, but I do. And so it's very important and it's like a huge part of all our shows and everything we do. Yeah.
0: Lee, this is a question for you. Yeah, uh, I asked Toe Zaman this the other day after they came on for Caravan, uh, and I was reminded of this specifically because at PodCon we had your stickers to hand out at, at the PodTales booth. We had we had the Love and yep. Luck ones, and then we had some some Seabrook ones. Mm-hmm. And the Seabrook ones said, by "Monster the way. Lover." Of course, <laughs> it is our privilege. <laughs> um, the the Seabrook ones said like "Monster Lover" and mm-hmm. "Monster Fucker," um, and and the question that I asked Toe and the question that I'm asking you now is what does it what does it mean to be a, a monster fucker? Like I can I can expand on that but if you have a ready to ready to go answer, please.
3: Oh, that's a that's a real good question that one is. So, I think Look, the, the the absolute base definition is, so, is someone who either fucks monsters, wants to fuck monsters, or has it as their, their overarching desire in their heart to go out there and fuck the unknown. Like that's, <laughs> that's personally my sort of view of, of the thing. Cause I think, cause especially for me, like I, I am not overly into the monster fucking scene, although I am certainly adjacent to it. <laughs> um, but I do often feel that a lot of what people get out of sort of the monster fucker scene is this, idea of being able to engage with something which is very, very different to what they're experiencing elsewhere.
2: And without the baggage. Yes. There's none of the cultural baggage with monsters because A, they're not real. Yeah. And B, like, if they are real they come from they, they don't have human culture mm. so you can leave behind every bit of sexist ableist, like transphobic garbage in the world and you could just like actually be present in an experience for once
0: this was my question this was my question because as i was listening to the first episode of of dr seabrook i was like okay i'm trying to map some of these calls onto real life real life queerness or living with chronic illnesses or disability and then i was like okay but on another level this could just be like sexy monsters well, that, well that's a wonderful thing you brought out, because that is, in
3: fact, the entire point of Seabrook, because the thing that I've hated right. so much about a lot of sort of discussion of like queers and monsters is this idea that queers are monsters. And like right. what we the, it was a very explicit design choice in Seabrook that we wanted monsters to stand alone. When we talk about monsters, they're not metaphors for other groups. And one of the reasons we do that is because then we can start dealing with the intersectionality of monsters and, um, and disability and queerness. It means we don't have to focus on just like the monsters as they relate to us. We can talk about monsters on their own and then start bringing in all of our baggage as well. Like it, it adds so much to the show to be able to say monsters are their own thing like monsters exist, they are their own thing, and then we add race and then we add ge- gender and then we add queerness. We add all these things onto the monsters because they're still living in the same world we are.
2: Mm. Right. Yeah, it was actually part of the writer's brief mm. to, that we're not doing monster as metaphor. Like we don't want anyone to write monster metaphor in this show. We want you to write about monsters that might be anything, mm. but we right. don't want it to be... Ah uh, yes, let's explore queerness through this safe lens. It's like, no. Make the monsters gay. Like
0: <laughs> Make the Monsters gay. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting, cause I had this like moment, I was like, okay, are they doing that thing? I don't think they're doing that thing. <laughs> and then I'm I'm sure and right. then I went
2: past you know, like I listened to it and then I listened past it. I was like, oh okay. Mm. It was something that a lot of people at our launch party said because uh, we played the first two episodes at our physical launch, yeah. um, and a few people were like, "Wow, I was so scared of this, but it was like okay, <laughs> because you do you get very guarded about right. uh, like when you're when you're any kind of yeah. like you know off from the mainstream, you get very guarded about monster fiction." Because it is so usually a metaphor and that's so boring. <laughs> like,
3: and, and even when it's not boring, because like there, there's two ways you can go about it, right? You can either absolutely embrace that concept of yeah. monster as a oh, metaphor sure. and just absolutely run with it. And often that's fascinating because you can then sort of look at the nuances and the subtleties of what that metaphor actually brings. But when that happens in every single time you see monsters from queer, art or, queer artists, you just go like sure, we, we've explored this, we've explored this. What if we explored what monsters would be like outside the metaphors with the actual things there? Mm-hmm. Like, w- what if we talked about gay vampires? What if we talked about, like, transgender werewolves? Like, let, let's talk about this. And it
2: was great because uh, um, our writer's room, did we have any straight writers?
3: No, actually, we, we were quite explicit that we did not want straight Oh, that's right, yeah, like. we had no straight writers. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, we didn't have as many people of colour as we really wanted, um, which is understandable. I, like, we're white and it's very understandable to go, mm, I don't know these white people. I don't want to work with them. Yeah. Um, fortunately, like, we've already had some interest mm. uh, for season two yeah. um, from some more writers of colour, which I'm very excited about. Mm. Um, oh, and that was another part of the design brief is we didn't allow anyone to write monsters that weren't from their culture mm. uh, we didn't Ooh. want to risk any we didn't want to risk anything no you know we want it sure. to be a safe show so like um to, to the point it was actually very funny one of our writers um she forgot to tell us during intake that she was jewish and so she wrote this, uh, ama- she pitched us this amazing idea about a golem, and we turned it down because we thought she wasn't Jewish. <laughs> and she asked why, and we were like, oh, we, you know, we want people to stick from, like, things from cultures that, you know, they're from. And she was like, oh, no, that that's me. <laughs> like, um, it was very egg on our face. Yes. But apparently she was actually very tickled by it because, mm. like, um, she yeah. comes from a very conservative family, and it's very... Uh, uncommon for her to not be like pinned as Jewish from the first sure. moment of interaction with everyone. And
3: I think also same in, for me because, <laughs> cause yeah, she also talked to me about it. It's like one of the things that like really endeared her about that concept is that we were doing the work even while no one was watching.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like
3: we, like we didn't know if she was Jewish and we were still saying, well, look, we, we want to respect sort of Jewish culture in this respect. And she was like, well, that's okay because I'm from the Jewish culture. But thank you for respecting us, like, like without anyone having to tell you about it. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's so sad. fucking that's sad. sad.
2: <laughs> it's so, honestly, the the compliments we get is are so sad in all of our shows. Like, I've had like repeated compliments of like, like actors being like, "You're such a nice director. You never yell at me, and you always give me time." And I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> like. Why is that a thing? Like, you Uh, know, like, or like, God, like writers who are like, I'm sorry, I need extra time. And we're like, it's fine. And they're like, oh, you've been so understanding. And it's like, you 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 talked to us,
3: (laughs) you you told us things were okay. All we wanted was for you to communicate to us.
2: It's really sad. I need producers to be better because I keep interacting with people who have really upsetting compliments for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, And it was... Because the woman who plays Seabrook Mama Boho is a person of colour herself. And it's been, it was really great working with her because she is, she's like seasoned and professional. Like she's been in the performance industry.
2: She's a, she's a working performer. We actually had a lot of trouble scheduling her because she was on tour. She was on a comedy tour for most of the first part of the year.
3: And, and apparently she really enjoyed like the time working with her because one of the things we have with having lots of different writers for Seabrook is that sometimes Seabrook's voice, you know, it varies from call to call. And sometimes we'd get to a point, it's like, yeah, but would Seabrook actually say this? Mm. And I was quite clear with Mama Boho that I wanted to give her the freedom to be able to make those minor choices. That I would work with her to sort of get the line working in a sense that I could still use it for the show, because we still had everyone else's lines recorded already, mm. but right. also get it into a form that it sounded like Seabrook. And it was so great working with like a seasoned performer because I was a first time director and I was terrified the whole time. He was so scared. <laughs> <sighs> it was like, I spent so much time just like, oh, th- thank God. Cause like I could do a lot. Like it, I didn't have to communicate as actively as probably Aaron does during direction. Cause Aaron, one of Aaron's main points of direction is that he will be able to sit down and figure out exactly what he needs to say to get the performance you want out of someone. I am not that good at that. But fortunately,
0: Malabohu was very good at figuring out what I wanted from what I was saying. So it worked. (laughs) It worked very well. So, Aaron. Yes. Arts Access Victoria recently featured you as an artist in Focus.
2: Yes, I was very excited.
0: In in that feature, you said podcasting is a lawless land of self-expression, and that kind of freedom is incredibly gratifying when you're a marginalized creator. Uh, mm. And I thought that that was interesting that you said it was lawless, even though you were being jocular, right? Even though you were you were goofing.
2: Yeah, I was. Because
0: <laughs> something that I respect very much about both of you is that, despite being punk as fuck, you have established laws in podcast land, laws of kindness dignity and compensation for creators so tell me about Mm. like the ways in which you know the two of you are like lawmen of this untrammeled uh land
2: (laughs) well the main thing is i will yell at everyone about accessibility all the time (laughs) if you ever need someone to yell about accessibility in podcasts hit me up (laughs)
3: And and I will regularly yell at actors to take the goddamn money. Please don't ruin my spreadsheets. Do not ruin my accounting. I accounted for this. Take the goddamn money.
2: Writers, too. We had so much trouble paying people. Everyone would be like, oh, no, no, it's okay. I had fun. And I'm like, I know you had fun. That doesn't mean it's not work. That doesn't mean this isn't in our budget. And, like, (laughs) we we are very we are not well off like we do not have a lot of money we unfortunately cannot pay our teams like award wages which is um a minimum wage basically yeah um and like so we're already apologizing because like we we try basically the way we price people is we try to pay people roughly for twenty dollars per hour of their time so sometimes there's give either direction in that, but if someone is only doing a half hour of work for us, we give them 20 bucks. Um, If someone is doing, you know, like five hours of work for us, we'll give them like 200 bucks. Um, And like, obviously it varies a lot, like on things that are harder to figure out how long they're working on something. But like, you know, we're, we're trying our best and it's actually been really difficult. People don't want to get paid. They're all like, You know, no, 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 I want to help. because, And and it comes from a really good place, right? Because they know that we're marginalized people as well. They know that, like, we, like, don't have a lot of money. So they think they're helping us. But the thing is, is it actually doesn't help because it creates this precedent. Mm. And there's a big difference between collaborating with someone on something and doing something that someone else tells you. Mm. If you're collaborating with someone, of course, you know, maybe you won't pay them. That's fine. You're collaborating. You're equals. But if I ask someone to write something for me, that's not a collaboration. Right. That's me asking them to do something for me. Yeah. So I should pay them for that.
3: Like I've mentioned to a few writers that, you know, I'm paying you on spec. When you send something to me, I get the right to tell you what I want changed and then you change it and then I pay you. Mm. And like, that's completely different from a collaboration where we sort of be bouncing ideas of each other. And sometimes it can look like that. Sometimes we'll say, well, look, yeah, like look, look, looking at this concept, I think you should do it this way. I think this is where you want to go. But ultimately, like we are the person who have the ultimate say so on this. It's not like they can say it's done. I'm done with it. It's like, well, no, you're not done with it until we are ready to say it's done. And that's a very different power dynamic. And, like, that's not collaboration, that's working for us.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's, and yeah, like you say, of course you collaborate with them in the sense that, you know, it requires cooperation, Mm. but that's not the same thing as being equal parts of something. No. And, like, being very aware of that difference in power is really important. Mm. Like, we already, as, as marginalized people, we are already shit on enough. We are already taken advantage of enough why would we do that to someone else? Like, you know, we're we're just trying to not be shit <laughs> at I the was- end of the day, that's our core principle. Just try not to be shit. <laughs>
3: I, I, I was I was so upset because I was um, I was on uh, will Williams Pop Probs Discord, um, and a couple of people were talking about how um Seabrook was the first production they ever got paid for. And I was like, what i've I've see- heard you in like, six productions already how are you telling me that i'm the first person to pay you no that and like i was very angry to be fair like look
2: to be fair like like season one of love and luck was done on volunteer labor Hmm. i think it is totally reasonable for people to say hey i don't have money would anyone like to do this for fun yeah but the metrics of what you can ask of people in that is different yeah If someone is doing something just for fun, you don't have as much control over what's happening Mm. and you can't, or you're a tyrant and I hate you. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, so like season one, we had, everyone was volunteer, um, even our audio engineer. Mm. So like, I would literally bend over backwards. Anything they needed, I would make happen because they were doing me a favor because that's what volunteer labor is. They're doing you a favor. You have to, Take that with consideration that mm. it is a favor. It's not free labor that you never have to think about. No. It's someone is doing something nice for you, yeah. and so you need to have respect for that. Just be nice. <laughs> Why is this so revolutionary? It shouldn't be.
3: I, I've talked, I've talked a few places elsewhere about the concept of the fair equivalent exchange. Yeah. Um, and. Like, I really like it because when you shorten it becomes a fee. And like, I think that's very cute. Um, But so the whole idea of the fair equivalent exchange is that if you're doing something for someone and you're getting something out of it, it doesn't necessarily have to be something monetarily getting something out of it. You might get something like, say, you might get a chance to practice something. You might get a chance to play a role that you've always wanted to play or something like that. And in those cases, you're happy to, like, reduce how much you're getting paid monetarily for the chance to do something that you kind of want to do. But the other thing is that you can't eat on a fair equivalent exchange. Yeah. So when you do that, like, you have to accept that if anyone's getting paid work, you're at the back of the queue. Mm. Like, you can't insist on someone that, like, you get, like, a 48-hour turnaround to do something if you're not paying them.
2: And also, if anyone is getting paid in a production, everyone should be getting paid. Yes. Um, I don't think that it's appropriate to only pay certain people. Mm. Um, 100% agree. Like... Yeah, I think that's really important. I also like, you know, one of uh, one of the other things we're known for yelling about is authentic casting, mm. um, which, again, I thought was a no-brainer, but here Apparently we are. Apparently not. Um, like, we, like, very explicitly only cast trans people as trans people. We cast people of colour as people of colour. Um, and as the appropriate person of colour. Yes. As well. Um, we're, like... I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're very big on inclusion. Like for all that, like we're we're like, you're like, like talking about being the lawman. man. It's like, I don't know. It's more about how we conduct ourselves. That's what matters. And like, I feel like a lot of stuff that we do, even if we find it weird that other people don't do it, we have good faith about that. We assume mm. that people just haven't thought about it or, you know, anything like that. Like I'm not interested in like, Punishing people. I just want us... I want us all to get better. Yeah, I, guess I want maybe, all of us to do better. Maybe
0: lawman is... Number one, first of all, it carries with it a kind of... You know, American West colonial violence... Mm. <laughs> connotation. I guess maybe I mean more like paladins. Like you are upright. <laughs> you know, like morally upright and, and interested in... Not smacking demons and whatnot, unless they've been very naughty. But like... Just sort of modelling good behaviour for people.
3: Yeah, like one of the things that we have talked about quite regularly is the idea that we want to present the change that we want to see in the world. Right. So, and especially in the Australian scene where there's not a lot of fiction makers out there. Like one of the things that we've realised that- And almost
2: all the ones that are indie.
3: Yes. So what it means is that we get an opportunity to influence how those people feel about productions in this new space. So we can sit down and say, these are the things that we think are ethical to do. These are the things we think should be stuff that everyone does.
2: We have been given the very heavy responsibility of being some of the earliest creators in fiction podcasting in Australia. With that fact, with coming this early means that we are responsible for setting the standard. If we don't think about it, if we do if we just think oh it doesn't matter we'll just do what we want that builds a precedent that people shouldn't think about it and should just do whatever they want like if we are going to be visible as creators in this space and as like you know early adopters of this medium in this country we need to set a standard we need to we need we have the opportunity to build part of an industry here in a way that is collaborative and kind and respects people and Mm. isn't competitive or rude and doesn't shut people out based on arbitrary things. Mm. Um, you know, and that is something we take very seriously, you know, it's, it's not like as much as like podcasting is fun and we're all here to have fun. The level of visibility and the earliness of us in our country's industry means that we can stop all the awful stuff that happens in media markets now. Mm. We have the opportunity to say, no, we're not only going to preference big studio productions. We're not going to preference white people. We're Mm. not going to preference straight people. We're going to make this available and accessible And we're going to make other people make it that because I'm not interested in just standing around and letting things happen without me and without all the other people that could be here. I'm very conscious of who's not in the room yet. And I want to make sure that when they're in the room, it won't be an issue. Um,
3: We don't want to get to a situation where a lot of other arts industries have now where They're struggling to figure out ways of getting these people into the door because they're realizing, oh, wow, this is a really bad look for us. It's like, sure, why don't you put on the good look first?
2: Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, we're trying to nip this in the bud (laughs) and just kind of, yeah. So like, I don't know, even this conversation, like this conversation is really depressing to me because I don't feel like we're doing anything special. Like, and it's it's something that comes up a lot a lot of people want to talk to us about oh you pay everyone and oh you're really good about inclusion and like oh you know oh you're really good about access and i'm like yeah but
3: shouldn't that be the standard
2: but even if it's not even if we are unusual i don't i don't know i feel weird about being singled out for it i guess because i i, I don't want to accept congratulations for something that i think is just like You know what it is? The reason it upsets me um, now that I think, and and I say upsets me in a very casual way, not in a like, oh, I'm so upset way. But the reason it bothers me is because it reminds me as a disabled person of whenever a disabled person does something really normal and everyone's like, oh my God, you did it. Oh, so inspirational. Like, you know, it's that same kind of like incredible low bar of Mm. expectation. It shouldn't be noteworthy. And I... I'm upset that it is, <laughs> and culturally, we need to fix this because I don't want to be noteworthy for being accessible or inclusive. I want to be noteworthy for making a great show that made someone cry. Like I want that to be what's special. I want you know, like I. I mean, I'm very happy. I mean, you, I do, like-
0: you do do both. <laughs>
2: yeah. I was doubled.
0: I was watch. I was washing dishes. Uh, Like, sometime at the very beginning of this week, listening to episode 100 and just sort of, like, sobbing at, like, (laughs) 7 in the morning, doing dishes in my stocking feet, just like, oh, cleaning up from last night, this is so beautiful.
3: (laughs) So, so some fun facts. I not only yep. really cried when I was a- when I was acting my monologue for that, but I also cried while I was checking it for errors, and I was also crying while I was transcribing it, and I was also tra- crying while I did the captions on YouTube. <laughs> so, there's been a lot of crying on episode 100 on my behalf. <laughs> Lee, I'm very, never
0: not yeah. crying.
2: <laughs> I'm very proud of episode 100. I'm mm. very proud of all of season two. Actually, I mm. really, I really am happy with how it went. Mm. But, um, but yeah, like I. I don't want this to be noteworthy because we're still below where we should be. Hmm. Like, we're still not paying, like, I want to be paying people award wages. I want to be paying people better. I want to have, like, better reach to people who might otherwise not consider doing things.
3: We want, we want people of colour to look at our productions and say, yeah these are people that i want to work with and be willing to put themselves out there for us
2: yeah like i i i want this to be like definitely my dream don't get me wrong my dream reputation is definitely that cool guy who's fun to work with like that is definitely my goal but like i don't want it to be over something as simple as not yelling at my actors you know i want it to be
0: what a low bar that would be than that
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i want And, you know, yeah, like, and I think that's the other thing is I don't feel like we're there yet. I Mm. feel like we're still growing and we still have a lot of problems that we're trying to iron out. And, like, I don't know, like, I just, I don't know. Hi, I'm a type A person and I'm never satisfied with anything, I guess, Hmm. is is the answer.
3: (laughs) But in many ways, it's useful for me because I am very much a type B personality. And I'm very glad to have a type A in my life to actually get shit done. (laughs)
2: I, uh, the one thing I haven't done in this interview is yell enough a, a, about how good our teams are, honestly. Mm. Um, you, you, you failed, David. You didn't ask us to yell about how much we love our teams. Yell um, about how much like, you love your team. Because, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, working, especially on Nim, mm. like, we were having weekly Slack meetings for almost three years working on this thing. like, wow. And, you know, we... I don't know. I just love them so much. They did such a good job, they, mm. you know, with, like writing and like you know they were all very interested like um like especially al reynolds and jamie drake they were both interested in the production side of things as well so they were associate producers um and helped me out with a lot of the production stuff as well um which was really amazing and like you know they, they just did such a good job and like morgan uh, when morgan left those were some big shoes to fill because they wrote al in just this such charming way that was actually really hard for me to take over <laughs> and try to be as charming. Um, and like all our actors are perfect. Um, and like all our actors in love and luck are perfect.
3: And all of our writers and all the voice actors. Oh, all so, so many of them. So
2: perfect. And I yes, love them so, so much. So
3: many of them and all of them are perfect in every single way.
2: Um, yes. I especially like, I try, obviously, we we don't have favorites, but I am gonna shout out Nick Rummery, who plays Julie in Love and Luck. She had no acting experience. Oh my god! She had some performance experience, but no acting experience. She's um, so good. She's so incredible. Good. She's also amazing to work with. Like she took all my ridiculous, like, here's how I want this to go and could somehow do it. Mm. There was one of Julie's tapes. I don't remember which one. I think it might've been episode 99. Lee thinks it's episode 99 Mm. where we only did one take because we did that one take and I was listening to it and I was like, this is actually perfect. Mm. I don't even want... Like, normally, even if someone does a really good take, I still get more takes because I like to have options. But that one take was so perfect. I felt really bad because she finished it and literally I started screaming like, oh my God, that was perfect! And then I was screaming down the line. like, oh my God, that was perfect! So, unfortunately, she finished this really heartfelt message and then had people screaming at her. And I was really, really sorry about that. Oh, (laughs) no! But, like, she... Like, I am unfortunately don't have another project yet that i know where i'm gonna put her but i really hope to work with her again Mm. she is so wonderful um i just can't yell about her enough she's Mm. just been so incredible isn't Um, isn't it
0: such a pleasure to like understand the contours and the timbre of an actor's voice and then just want to like craft something for them
2: Lee actually has a, a thing that if he ever gets around to writing, he yes. already knows he's casting again.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. like um, a, I was like, no, no, Nick Nick is the only voice that I can imagine in this. So.
2: And it's noteworthy for me because I'm not a big fan of reusing actors. Um, really? Most like, yeah, mostly because I really like to be a foot in the door. We work with a lot of people with no acting experience. And so I like to be that first bit of experience. Um, but also because I'm aware that if someone listens to one of our shows, they're probably going to listen to more of our shows. And I know that I personally can get really sort of bamboozled if I hear the same voice in a lot of different roles. Um, so, like, I try to keep things a bit separate.
3: I, I, I had to fight to get Justin Jones Lee, who <laughs> yes. plays Ricardo, into Seabrook. Aaron's like, oh, but we've worked for this. like, Aaron, Aaron. We both know that he is perfect for this role. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I know, but I'm always like, Aaron.
2: Yeah, like I am sure I will get softer on this as yeah. time goes on. Um, but like, at the moment, I am particularly because working with local actors, mm. I'm try again, we're trying to get people thinking about doing this in the industry. We're mm. trying to get actors thinking about podcasts. We're trying to get writers thinking about podcasts.
3: It's about so, one of the whole reasons we structured Seabrook the way we did number one because there was no way I could write every call on my own um, but also because we could distribute the idea of writing for audio among a whole bunch of different writers mm. and get them all to come up with ideas like think about the genre and it's working by the way there's a few writers who are very clearly looking at setting up their own podcast sometime soon one of our writers That's very Anna, good. the one
2: I'm yeah. yeah, Hannah, the one I mentioned before, who had the Golem story, yeah. uh, she's actually working on a podcast now, mm-hmm. um, which I'm very excited. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about what it is, so I won't. Yeah. Um, but I know she is currently working on a fiction podcast project, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. Um, yeah. So like, but yeah, I, I, I just want to use I want Nick in everything all the mm-hmm. time. But yeah, like all of our teams, like we've been so lucky and like Kermi our recording engineer for yeah. Love and Luck, like they have been so incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and Eris who came to fill in, Kami yeah. was sick for a couple of sessions. So we had mm-hmm. Eris, uh, come in, like, I don't know. I feel the best thing about podcasting has been all these wonderful people that I've met and I've got to make stuff with mm-hmm. and like, it's been so good. And I just, I'm so grateful to our teams. Like everyone's been so wonderful. And it's just so good. And I'll stop now, but thank you for letting me yell about how much I love everyone I work with.
0: Of
3: course. <laughs> the thing is, every time Aaron says we should probably do something just in case, it turns out to be incredibly useful. And do you know how irritating it is for me <laughs> as a type B personality type? Um, there was the first year we went to Audio Crafts.
2: <laughs> I know this yes, story. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, yep. yep.
3: We went to a, um, went to a session all about podcast law and during the podcast sessions, like, I, I always defer to Aaron because Aaron was the main lead on everything. But he's like, no, Lee, I need you to make sure that we have forms. That we have so we talent can, releases. We have releases, confidentiality, confidentiality deeds. Yeah. Yep. We, we need to make sure we have all this. And I was like, it's just a little podcast. All you need is like, yes, we do. Yep. And we got to the pod law pod and one of the first things that came out of it was like... You need to make sure you have releases, and I could feel the smugness. I didn't even, <laughs> even look at him. I could feel the smugness radiating. I on was him. I
2: didn't I wasn't even looking at the stage at that point. I literally was just staring directly at Lee. And like, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I was vindicated. Yeah. Look, I like one of the ways my anxiety manifests is I like to plan for all scenarios but the thing is that's a really useful thing it is that's a really like, useful thing my anxiety does it's like, <laughs> like 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 yes it's
3: irritating but also it's a saved our bacon so many times that it's one of those things that i'm irritated with but also <laughs> just like go all right let's do this because yeah.
2: <laughs> because i you know to, uh, to quote that yeah. panel no one starts a podcast planning to fail mm. like sure, you might not succeed, but if you do, don't you want to be prepared for it? Mm. Um, I mean, that's why like, we only just set up as a business this year. Yep. Um,
3: just finished the first tax return.
2: Yep. Um, and a lot of stuff like that, like, because I just want to be prepared. I Mm. liked, I, I like to be organized. Um oh God th- things that hurt my soul that my our team say mm. uh one of our writers said that Seabrook was the most well organized production she'd ever been involved with, and that made me want to die because I feel like it's still very haphazard, but like
3: where whereas for me, this is the most organized I have ever been <laughs> <laughs> ever
2: I just well the thing is again, this is like I get i I don't like the disability as superpower thing, but as I said, I can't memorize things. My brain literally won't hold information in long term. So I have to write everything down. I have to make sure everything information is readily available that Mm. I can refresh my memory. So that means if someone's like, how many writers do we have? I've got the list of writers somewhere I can look at. If it's like, Oh, when is the next recording schedule? I'll be like, here's the list of the next recording Mm. dates. Like, you know, we have, uh, all of our podcasts have living design documents, um, that we update from the very conception of the concept. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Production flow is really important to me because it's the only way I can get things done. Like I can't just barrel through things without planning because I'll forget what I'm doing.
3: <laughs> and it's also a thing that, cause also because Aaron is disabled, like Every attempt that fails is energy that can't be recovered back as easily.
2: Yeah. So it's got to work the first time.
3: Yeah. Whereas for me, on the other hand, I'm quite happy to smash my head against things repeatedly because I have enough energy to do it. And when I get exhausted, I can rest for a bit and get back at it. And Aaron just thinks this is wild.
2: I don't understand why you wouldn't just do it right in the first place.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This, this, This is a constant philosophical argument between the two of us.
2: Um, Yeah, so, sorry, we went off on another tangent, but (laughs) yeah, so basically Passable Pest Productions was simply, we should have a production name because we want to be prepared for success. Um, And that's turned out really well. Yeah.
0: It has. It's been really nice, like, seeing that dynamic play up between the two of you as well.
2: (laughs) I mean, yeah, we've been together for nearly 13 13 years. 13 years, Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't remember how, is the next anniversary our 13th? I think it is. Possibly. I don't remember. I'd have to I'd have to check my notes. Yes. Um Yeah, yes it is, because yes. we got together in two thousand seven. Yes. So like we've been together for nearly thirteen years, mm. like it's really interesting, a lot of people are like, oh, what's it like, like working with your partner? And that feels like such a weird question to me because like, it's fun. I like yeah. it. Like,
3: <laughs> Sometimes we get frustrated at each other's processes, but that kind of happens in every creative endeavour, so. Yeah,
2: but also that would happen even if we weren't working on something together. Yeah. Like, you know, people are people. Mm. Like there's always gonna be stuff you have to work out. But like, yeah, it's 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 one of the good things about having been together so long is that there's a security there yeah. that means that, like, yeah, I don't know. A lot of stuff is very easy and comfortable, mm. which is nice. I
0: have run out of questions. Are there questions you want to ask me? Or are there things I have neglected to, uh, additional things I've neglected to ask about?
2: Mm, what do you think? Ooh, um...
3: I mean, you've gone through all the, th- all the stuff that puts you on a rant, and we know because we about
2: that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> i am
3: be sorry. Just, I'm just
2: like this. <laughs> Aaron. there's a reason
3: people love putting you on radio programs, because yeah, you will talk forever. There
2: is never dead air when I'm on a radio. Absolutely not.
3: <laughs> um, I think one thing I will say just right now, because, you know, I have the platform and you can't stop me, mm-hmm. um, is that I will be completely clear on this and say that this of this production team like i rely on aaron so much to get a lot of the production stuff done because i said aaron's brain just like thinks of stuff that would just never come up in my head and i have been i have been quite clear with a lot of stuff that seabrook would not exist if aaron was not there constantly telling me lee where you going to do this lee are you going to do this lee you need to think about this and every time he says that i just go but it but it happens and it gets done somehow
2: It was actually one of the conversations when we started Seabrook was I said, I was like, okay, are you serious? You want to do this? And Lee was like, yes. I'm like, okay, you understand my name is on this as well, which means that you will not be allowed to let this fizzle out and die. You Mm. will finish this and it will be up to a good standard Mm. because I'm not okay with leaving this just go. And Lee has a, a long history of starting and abandoning projects. I have, not,
3: I have not acquired that skill of pushing through things when things get tough. That yeah. is that is not a skill that I have more directly.
2: Hashtag man. gifted kid life. Like, <laughs> oh, tell
3: me about it. Tell me about it.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's really interesting because I feel like sometimes when you tell people like, oh, Seabrook wouldn't have happened without Aaron, I feel like the social script is that I should be really modest and be like, oh. No, don't be modest. Oh, you know. No, oh, how sweet. But 100% the show wouldn't exist without me because no, I have sure. spent a lot of time... Being like, Lee, (laughs) we need to have a production meeting. Lee, do the thing. We need to have this done. I'll be like, Lee, this is the deadline. Like, you know, like, you know, uh, probably the most tense moment in our entire relationship happened over Seabrook. Yeah. Because I was just getting frustrated with Lee's, like, lack of planning around things. Because Lee also does this thing where he gets really confident without a plan to back the confidence up. And like I can't mm-hmm. I can't deal with that. Nope. I need a plan.
3: <laughs> and and the worst part is the confidences is, is never the confidence is always misplaced. Like yeah. I when we get down to like, all right Lee, are you gonna do this? It's like, um <laughs> Yes, let me start that right away. It's like, Lee, we've been talking about this three months. Yes, I'm gonna start this now.
2: Yeah, like I think there was something like that that yeah. was we was very tense moment that was like, mm. you said you were working on this. Um But yeah, like, I mean, having said that, it's still been fine.
3: Yeah. But, and it's also this thing, because like, I also know that as much as Aaron is the driving force behind Love and Luck, like, I also know that there's a lot of production stuff on Love and Luck that wouldn't be able to happen if you didn't have me around. Yeah, exactly. Like, I
2: need you just as much. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, it's not like, you know, like it's very easy to sort of go because I'm the one making a lot of decisions and pushing things forward that somehow I'm doing more work, but that's not true. No. Like it's just different work. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the nice things again about being in a relationship because mm. we've already had that situation multiple times. Yes. Like just by nature of being together and living together for so long, you have to figure out how to work with your strengths. Yes. Um, as a couple. And like, so it's very easy to bring that into podcasting. Yes. Like, Lee answers so many emails. So many emails. Because I get exhausted answering emails, whereas Lee does not find it particularly tiring.
3: No, in fact, most of Seabrook's production process was basically emails. emails, Between yeah. <laughs> everyone. And, and frankly, that was one of my biggest strengths because I work in a bank. I'm an analyst. I answer emails all the time. Yeah. So, like, this is just something I do.
2: Yeah, like... So, yeah, it's it's really good. We complement each other well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, fellas, thank you
0: so much for joining me. This has been an absolutely lovely conversation. It was such a privilege thank to you. finally talk to you both voice to voice.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to me rant a lot. <laughs> it,
3: it has been an absolute pleasure to occasionally, occasionally hear <laughs> Eric's rants from time to time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <From the light>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was good. Uh,
3: I love you. Honestly, I uh, do.
2: I'm sorry. You're right, oh. though. The, the, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just have a lot of feelings, okay? <laughs> Look,
3: to be fair, this is, this is how all of our radio interviews go anyway. So, like, yep.
0: I, I, knew, I knew what I was getting into when I started this. <laughs> I love you both so much.
2: <laughs> we love you, too.
0: If you'd like to support Aaron and Lee in their creative endeavors, head to patreon.com slash that's P-A-S-S-E-R-V-U-L-P-E-S, to lend them your support. Support our show and the people behind it by visiting patreon.com slash Radio Revival, or head to radiodramarevival.com slash shop to browse our many beautiful wares. I finally managed to get everyone on the team a shirt, and I'm so happy with them. Will, how do you feel about that cotton-poly blend?
1: David, it's so cozy.
0: Mine is like wearing a cloud, but not damp or see-through. Okay, it's like wearing a smile. I don't know. I just love our logo, and I really love seeing it on stuff in the real world. And I hope you do too. Radiodramarevival.com shop. Here it comes, y'all. Your moment of Will. Last week, Will teased us with a conspiracy about a tater tot Instagram account. Will,
1: tell us the deets. Last episode, I teased you with some information about a celebrity run Tater Tot account that the celebrity was running in private. Thanks to some very tricky PI work on behalf of the fans of the Tater Tot Instagram account, it was discovered that the person posting Tater Tot reviews was in a lot of the same places as the currently touring Lord. Yes, that's Lord with an E, the Australian singer uh while on tour she decided to have some fun and review some tater tots but was ultimately found out by some sharp-eyed fans so yes lord did run a tater tot review instagram that was very popular people loved it 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 was a good account i hope that some someday she'll be able to review those tots in true anonymity it's what she deserves and hey listener You are also, like a tater tot, you are cute and small and good and nice and nourishing more than a tater tot. Probably. It's the holidays. Eat a tater tot. Goodbye!
0: Thank you, Will. And now, let us sound the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the sound of a llama learning to tap dance. (laughs) This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey People, and the Nanticoke People. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the Native, First Nations, or Indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhound. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.